Uh, my name is Steve Daw. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, I'll be filling in for the next two weeks. If you uh, remember the times that I've actually been preaching here before, I've been going usually through the book of Nehemiah. Ezra is not the book of Nehemiah. Uh, there is a reason behind this. There's a reason I'm actually going over one book to Ezra chapter 3 instead of just focusing on Nehemiah chapter 3. And uh, we'll get to it uh, in a deeper sense by the end of it. This will all make sense at the end. I really have planned this out. Um, but for the moment, it, we should probably recognize that this is uh, going to be a little bit off of the regular beaten path for things that I would normally be preaching here. I'm, uh, I'm not in the same series. Next week, I'll be dealing with Ezra, or sorry, Nehemiah chapter 3, not Ezra chapter 3, and that's the next part in my series. The reason I'm doing this is because I felt there's something that needs to be said before I talk about Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, if you remember, Nehemiah, uh, to go back, he's a cupbearer in the co uh, court of a famous king, and he finds that his home uh, city, Jer Jerusalem, has no walls, which, as we said, is a really bad thing for a first century city. It means that bandits can come in. It means that uh, you have no protection at all. The, there is no safety. Uh, problems can uh, come up very easily. Uh, so he is brokenhearted for his home city. He's brokenhearted for the way that his city is broken down. And so he prays and God miraculously gives him blessing so that he can return to Jerusalem to build a wall. And next week in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we have a very long list of people building a wall. Riveting, I know. There's some important things to, to look at there. But before we deal with something that's going to be very fiercely practical, I think it's important that we deal with a contextual issue first. Mainly, namely, what powers the ability of people to follow what God commands. So I'm going to be, I, I decided to go over to Ezra chapter 3 to give some context here because it's important to understand a little bit why we're going to see what we're going to see in Nehemiah. It's really, really important that we don't miss this one major point. Now, before I begin and deal with this, uh, because it's going to be a little bit harsh in some ways, I have to start with one thing that you absolutely must have in your head and keep in your head throughout everything I say today. God loves you. Good. Some of you are, you know, like looking at me and still, you know, nodding your heads. And so. No, God loves you. I don't mean airy-fairy, touchy-feelies. I mean God loves you. I mean a strong, undergirded love from the beginning of time. God loves you. It's important that you know that. 
It's important that that be the thing that, one of the things that permeates the base of your soul, the thing that makes sure that you have an identity. You are loved by God. God loves you. And I don't want you to trust me. This is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So recognize that before you were actually a good person, before you were acceptable to God, while you were in rebellion and hatred towards God, Christ died for the ungodly, which is us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's important that we remember God loves us. That our identity be found in the fact that God loves us. And there's... The reason for that is the problem that I want to deal with. Because sometimes we use the love of God for us in, in bad ways, in ways that keep us from living the life we should be living. You see, the simple fact is we can assume God's love and ignore it. You can, and that's dumb. That's lacking in intellectual capacity. I'm not going to use the word that I have on the screen because it's a little too blunt. But we can assume on the love of God and then ignore it. What do I mean by that? We, We can remember that God loves us. We can remember that God has deep care for us and then just simply live our lives as if God doesn't matter. As if the unity with, uh, between God and us, but the reason that God died for us and saved us from our sin is immaterial. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I keep it in my back pocket until I have to deal with the eternal things and the end of time. I don't, it doesn't change the way I live. It doesn't change whether or not I spend time with God. I simply assume on the on God's love that's dumb you see because if you want to live the christian life if you want to live the kind of life that comes from being saved by God it's important that you not just remember that God loves you it's important not that you just assume it but that you be able to love God too You see, sin has this really weird habit of overwhelming your desires for things. You can desire the things that aren't God more than God. You can treat the love of God, God loves you, that's settled. So since that's settled, I'm not going to live any uh, any life that, I'm not going to live in light of God, I'm not going to seek after God. I'm just going to seek after my own joy and my own benefits and pretend that God is unimportant because I know that he loves me. I know that he loves me, so it's okay that I sin. 
I know that he loves me, so it doesn't matter if I actually seek after him. And if you do that, you lack the ability to live the life that God calls us to, to live the life of joy. We're given ultimate joy. We have God standing before us and saying, you can have me, you can look at me, you can be united with me. And we instead turn to other things. That's dumb. We imagine that our computer is going to give us more joy than God. That's kind of dumb. C.S. Lewis actually uh, put it a little bit well when he said in his uh, lecture, um, The Weight of Glory, it's like we're kids playing in a slum with mud pies because we can't imagine what it's like to have a day at the beach. Friends, it's important that we remember that God loves us, but it's important also that we love God. But it's, the, the worst, it's not the worst that we could simply ignore him and s- turn away from him. You see, there's a, a worse thing that can happen. We can presume upon God's love. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. I'll give you an example. And this is an analogy. So analogies are a little shaky after, if you press them too far. Uh, I'm guessing most of you who are over the age of puberty have gone through puberty, right? You remember that. That was, that was a great time. Not awkward at all. You know, you start noticing uh, members of the opposite sex. Members of the opposite sex start noticing you. You start, you know, having crushes on people. It's, and everything feels so big and powerful and amazing. You know, your, uh, your loves feel more powerful at this point in time. Uh, your hatreds feel a little bit more powerful. It feels like absolutely everything is... Um, I don't know, earth-shaking, earth-shattering, world-changing. No one has ever loved as I love. No one uh, has ever felt as I feel. And I I can remember this myself, and uh, this is is partially because uh, I'm going to say this because it's, you guys are cheaper than therapy. Um... I remember my own period. I was a really awkward kid, like really awkward. And so uh, when I went through the period of puberty, I had the same kind of feelings. You know, I I started getting attracted to girls. And so, you know, you want to tell them. And, you know, being a horribly awkward person, I always did it poorly. What do you think is the worst thing that could happen when you do that? When you put yourself out and you say, I love you, or I like you, or I, I, I want to be with you, or I really like you. That would be probably, the, you'd think would be the worst, wouldn't it? You get rejected. I submit that's not actually the worst. That's bad. I, I, I have to admit, it's bad. <laughs> but rejection isn't the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you 
is if the person you say that to takes it and then uses that against you. They use it to make you do things for them. They use it against you to try and make you uh, look funny to other people in the class. They start making fun of you because of it. That would be much worse, don't you think? In fact, what if they started actually going out with other people around you just to watch the way that you squirm while they're flirting with somebody else? That would be pretty bad, wouldn't it? And, you know, that's, that's pretty bad from a human scale. What if I said what we do to God because of God's love for us by our assumption is a thousand times worse? Think about it. When, when I tell the, the girl in my third, grade, in my third level uh, culture class that I like her, and then she makes fun of me every day for the rest of the semester, and, and it gets so bad that I want to avoid every public area, not that that ever happened. <laughs> Thanks for the therapy, by the way, guys. Uh, I have no reason to demand that she like me. I ha- there's no reason why she has to love me. There's no reason why. I'm a pimply, awkward kid. I really don't. There's no reason to imagine why they would actually be interested in me, necessarily. They don't have to be. But God is ultimately beautiful. In fact, even more than that, he created us for himself. So no matter, when we assume on it, and when we, tr- when we treat him poorly, the, because, though he loves us, it's far worse. Because the object of his affection, us, is actually destroying ourselves while we're still at the same time attacking him. It's insane. (laughs) It's very, very dangerous because it's, it undercuts everything that we are. It undercuts everything that God is. And might I say it's even worse than that. Because there is nothing in the universe that could be more valuable than God. Friends, if you think that there's anything in this universe that is more valuable, more useful, more joy-giving than God, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. And yet, so often, we as believers, we as the people of God can so understand the love of God and God's love for us to just be some kind of abstraction, something that we don't really need to care about, and we go chase after things that not only are different than God, but that are going to destroy us. I mean, I don't know about you, I struggle with sin still. You know how that feels, right? You know, you, you, you've got this sin that you, that you keep trying to deal with. 
and then you do it again. And, you know, you think it's a good thing right up until you're actually doing it, and then you feel the terribleness afterwards of it. But right just before you're sinning, you really honestly believe that this sin is going to give you more joy than God will. In fact, you may even think about God. I've had this happen. You may even think about God for a second, and then it really does go through your head sometimes. But he loves me, so he'll forgive me, so I can go right ahead. And that's dangerous. And how does this have to deal with Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, glad you asked. About 90 years before the section we're going to be looking at in Ezra chapter 3, a prophet named Jeremiah spoke for God. God said this through Jeremiah. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what that which does not profit. It does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. You think he has an opinion about this? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Not only, not only are these people living with God near them, the fountain of living water, the very, the very fount of all things good, and instead of focusing on him, instead of following him, they ignore him and seek after things that can't possibly meet their needs that can't possibly say help it's very very dangerous and you see god has only two options if he's going to be accurate to his justice at this point option one he destroys the people of israel for their uh, terrible, terrible things that they've done and finds another people and creates from the, from the beginning. Or he's a loving God and he seeks after the people. He lets them follow into their, fall into their problems and when they've actually understood how important God is, he brings them back. And that's exactly what he did in the in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. See, after Jeremiah, the the nation of Israel fell and the people were brought off to uh, another kingdom. But the promise of God remained true, that God remained faithful. God then set it in the hearts of men at the beginning of the book of Ezra, which, by the way, runs parallel to the book of Nehemiah, Parts of Ezra are before Nehemiah, parts of Ezra are in the book of Nehemiah, and parts of Ezra are after the book of Nehemiah. So it's a very interesting book. But they run parallel to each other. And in the book of Ezra, he calls people back to Israel to rebuild the temple. God's faithfulness 
is restored. And there are different people. There are people who have understood now by this point that God is more valuable, that there are more valuable things than what they were seeking after, that seeking after the gods of other nations doesn't help, that it's not valuable, that it doesn't get you anywhere. They have understood what it is now to truly love God, not from the arrogant kind of way where you, where you presume upon God, not in the arrogant way in which you ignore God. They have learned about what it is to truly worship God. And so when we look at Ezra chapter 3, we're seeing an instance of godly worship. We're seeing the instance of God's, God's love working out through a people and through their actions. And I just want to actually—I want to point out a few things based on Ezra chapter three before we finish this morning to explain why it's important and to explain a little bit of the context for Nehemiah chapter three for next week. I want to talk about godly worship. First of all, we'll see that godly worship is about God. That does seem like a bit of a tautology, doesn't it? I said godly worship, it's about God. But that's something we forget a lot. I mean, whether or not we're Christians or whether or not we're in the Old Testament, we forget this one. I mean, how many worship services have you been in where most of the songs are not actually about God, they're about us? I'm not going to give any examples for the, for the fear of causing some people to be uh, a little bit embarrassed. But think about it for a little while. Sometimes songs are about the way you feel about God. Sometimes songs are about how God, ha- uh, God makes you feel really, really happy. And I'm really, really happy all the time. Which, by the way, is not theologically correct on a few levels. But people will sing this in, in church. Godly worship, though, is primarily about God. When we're worshiping God, we worship God. Not ourselves, not our own feelings, not our, not our own desires, not the th- prayer requests that we have. We worship God. Verse 11, chapter 3. And they sang responsively, giving, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The the temple had been destroyed. uh, They had actually fallen to the deepest point that that they could possibly fall. And God had remained faithful and had drawn them back to a place where they could rebuild the temple. Now, there are two ways that as people we can react to seeing God do great stuff. We can say, thanks God, yay, and then I'm just going to go enjoy this stuff. That's not the way these guys are actually worshiping, if you'll notice. They, they, they say, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel, because the foundation of the temple of the house of the Lord was laid. 
They're taking the event that God had done, the, God, the event that God had helped them through, and they're looking through the event to see the person of God in it. Do you get that? It's not adequate to just know the things that God does for you. It's not adequate to just catalog them in your mind or in your head. You need to be able to look through what God does and see Him and love Him. Praise Him. Thank, give thanks to Him. Godly worship is about God. Godly worship also obeys God. This is kind of important because, as I said, we often forget this one too. There's a couple of places in Ezra chapter 3 you can see this. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, son of Jazadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Notice that their prayer and their praise of God wasn't just some kind of thing that they decided they would do uh, on the fly. Notice it isn't just something that they made up in their heads. They obeyed God. They looked at what God desired for them to do, and they did it. Godly worship is in obedience to God. I, I, I have to say this because sometimes people will try, we believe that since God loves us, we can make up our own ideas about how we express our love back to God. It's kind of like if I, if I have a girlfriend and you know my girlfriend absolutely hates roses. And so every year on our anniversary, I buy her a dozen roses. And she tells me every year, Steve, stop buying roses or I'll dump you. And I happily say, honey, I'll just keep buying your roses. And I keep buying her roses. Needless to say, she might be a little displeased with me. You think? Godly worship is about God. It cares about what God desires for us. It cares about who God calls us to be. Godly worship obeys God. The people of Israel had learned this by now. They learned that it's more important to obey God than it is to do fancy shows for him. They knew that they needed to do what God called them to do. Verse 5. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and at the all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. They keep doing everything that the Lord asked them to do. They obeyed God, and they obeyed God as completely as they could. That's what godly worship looks like. 
Godly worship is also a priority. And quite closely related to it, godly worship trusts in God. I say that because in verse 3 it says, they set the altar in its place. Four, fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Notice that four there in the first line. They set the altar in its place, not despite fear of the people, uh, uh, of the peoples of the lands, not in opposition to the fear of the peoples of the land, for the fear of the peoples of the land was upon them. For fear was on them because of the people of the lands. They felt fear. They felt, they felt isolated. They felt alone. They were, sta- again, remember, this is before Nehemiah builds the wall around Jerusalem. They are unprotected. They're trying to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem while unprotected, and the people around them really don't like them. And they are in fear. And yet, in the face of that fear, they make God the priority. They put God above everything else. And second of all, they trust in God to protect them. They look at the, they look at the situation they're in and they recognize that if I'm going to survive as a believer here, if I am going to be if we are going to be a people here in Jerusalem at this time, we need God on our side. We need to be with God. And so they set the altar in place. Godly worship is about God. Godly worship Godly worship obeys God. Godly worship puts God as a priority, but, and godly worship trusts in God. Also, verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Before they do anything else, before they finish a lot, all of the work that they've gotten, they've gotten done, they put the worship of the Lord first. Now, we as believers in the modern world would do this a little differently. But think about it. We are a small church. We, you know, uh, we don't actually have enough space for everybody every week that we're here. I mean, we're a little low this week, but you know, some other weeks it's been standing room only at some places. Do we stop praising God and worshiping God here, on, here in, at Calvary Baptist because we don't have all of the necessaries that we, that we need? No. We make God a priority because God is more important than our facilities. He just is. But more importantly, we know that if God desires us to have better facilities, that's going to be ultimately up to God. So we focus on God. We seek after God. Godly worship trusts in God and has only fear of God. A friend of mine actually, uh, she's, uh, 
her ancestors were uh, Huguenots. Uh, and, one, and she has a tattoo acro- on her arm. Because I fear God, I will fear no man. That's what godly worship is like. It puts God at the center. God is the priority. God is what they desire to follow. God is what godly people follow. Godly worship is about God. It trusts God. But godly worship is also honest. Notice this. Um, it's a really interesting part of Ezra chapter 3. I don't know if you've, you might have been, uh, gotten bored with me talking and have you know, read through the rest of the chapter there without me. But look at verse 12. You see, what had happened is, again, remember the temple has been destroyed 70 years ago, 90 years ago, and they're now trying to rebuild it. And they've, they've marked out where the place is going to be. And, you know, a lot of people are really, really happy because God has been faithful and has drawn them back to it, and he's, he's shown them this. <coughs> but some people remember how the temple was before. You see, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses and old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. You see, some people, when we come together for worship, are in a different position than other people. It's interesting that when, at this point, when worship is being rebuilt at the temple in Jerusalem, people are being honest whether they're joyful or not joyful. You see, these men remembered what the temple was before. They remembered all of the things that they'd lost. They remembered the things that God had done for them in times past and that they had squandered and had, and had, had lost. And that does lead to sorrow. It probably should. I mean, when God was uh, one, of the thing, one of the occupational hazards of preaching is that God deals with you with his word before he gets you to stand up in front of other people and talk, talk about his word. And I remember this happening to me this week, dealing with my own sins in specific fields. I mean, there are things in my life that I've done that simply destroyed parts of the good gifts that God's given me. And I can remember weeping about it. That doesn't change the fact that God is good. But let's face it, I should bring those tears before God just as much as I bring the joy before God. Here, don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Here at Calvary, we don't want to be fake believers. If you feel sad, you're allowed to cry. If you feel happy, you're allowed to be happy. Don't don't try to pretend you're somebody you're not in front of the believers around you. Worse, don't try to pretend you're someone you're not before God. If you want to lift your hand in worship, lift your hand in worship. 
if you feel really broken right now and you'd like to put yourself down on your knees before the God of heaven and ask him for forgiveness for your sin, do that. Because godly worship is honest worship. Godly worship is also passionate. Now, I say this with some uh, advisement here because, you know, I'm not saying that you have to be the same type of passionate as everybody else. Uh, I have glasses. Uh, I'm an academic guy. So on average, I don't really get passionate a lot. It's just not one of the things that I do. I don't look passionate when I'm doing it. My passion is, you know, like I'm, I might be there. That, that's passionate. That's, the, that, that's, you know, where some people are like dancing in the, in the aisleways, me doing this, bow, bowed my head. That's, that's passionate worship for me. So I'm not saying that you need to be the same as everybody else. Go back to the one point just before this. Be honest. But there's nothing wrong with actually expressing the real feelings you have when you're worshiping God. There's nothing wrong with it at all. There's nothing wrong. If you really want to sing loud, sing loud. And, you know, uh, I, the sound people may kill me for this, but if you're tone deaf and you want to sing loud, sing loud anyway. The sound people can fix it up with that uh, fancy soundboard they've got. The Lord made the voice he deserves to hear it. You see this in the people of, uh, people of Israel in Ezra chapter 3, verse 13. So the people could not distinguish the sound from the, the joyful sound from the sound of people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You're allowed to be loud. If God is working in your heart and in your life to, for you to say great things about God at the top of your lungs, awesome, do it. This is one of the reasons why I really actually like when Steve says to people, you know, it's okay to say amen during a sermon. Uh, I don't drop a lot of amen moments, but Steve does, so you can say amen all the time for him. If you really agree with something that God is saying to you, yeah, go right ahead, say it. Because godly worship is passionate worship. Godly worship comes from your heart. It moves you. So, what does all this mean? Why did I, do, why did I say all this? I, I said that there was something that I think is missing in the actions and love of believers. I think that there's something missing in the way that we try to power our own lives and our own Christian witness. And yet then I just went into this whole long diatribe about worship. Just to review, godly worship obeys God, first of all. Godly worship trusts God. Godly worship makes God a priority. Godly worship is honest to God. Godly worship is passionate about God. Obeys, trusts, makes priority, honest, passionate. Does that look like something? 
If I am, if I obey someone, if I trust someone, if I make them a priority, if I'm honest with them, if I'm passionate for them, yeah, you're actually allowed to say that louder, you know. But you love God. And you see, this gets to the number one point in my problem when it comes to Christianity and to our own walk with God normally. You see, godly worship expresses love for God. The worship isn't actually the main point. The love for God is the main point. And you see, so often we talk about how we are loved by God. We talk about how God has done great things for us and God is doing great things for us. Yet so often we forget to talk about how we love God. Sometimes I worry that we do that because we don't. In the best cases, sometimes our love has grown cold. You know, it doesn't really send a send joy in our hearts to actually spend time with God to learn more about him. Though if you remember, when you first became believers, it did. In the worst cases, we're the kinds of people who hear that God loves us and, and like that hypothetical person in high school who is not me. You know, we... We treat God as if he's, he, he loves us, but, and so we're going to use that against him. We're going to use that to make fun of him, to ignore him, to, as a license to do the things we want to do in our lives without caring about him, i.e. we don't love him. Yet the Christian life, yet being with Christ and knowing Christ is about loving God. Not like it's a rule, because love isn't like that. But because love of God is important, because God is really supremely lovely, supremely lovable. He actually is worthy of worship. He actually is worthy of our love. And so often we forget that. And this is the kind of, this is the reason why we have trouble living Christian lives. This is why we have trouble actually being different from the community around us. Because in this very important point, sometimes we're not different than the people around us. Because we don't love him. And friends, that's tragic. That's <coughs> stupid. <coughs> it's dangerous. Because he does love us. He really does. We don't need to theorize about that. We have this big symbol here of a cross behind me. And we know what that means. It means that passage that I talked about at the beginning from Romans. 
that shows that God loves us. He showed his love objectively in history where we could see it, not in a corner where we have to wonder, well, maybe he did it and maybe he didn't. No, he did it. And he opened a way for us to see him, to be with him, to see him as supremely valuable and to know him. And yet the tragedy is so many of us can know all of this and still not seek to love him. I'm not saying that you have to love him perfectly. You won't until the end of time. But so often it's so easy for us to forget him as valuable and to just treat him as another tack on in our lives when he's not. You see, the application is a simple one. Does our worship express a love for God? And I'm using worship much more largely than, you know, singing songs on Sunday morning or listening to, to people like me stand here in a pulpit and explain to you what the Word of God is saying to us. I mean our lives. I mean, you know, like where it says, um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual... Anybody know the next word? Act, act of worship, service, to, but yeah. Again, this is what we, it actually actually says in Greek, the service. It says worship. You see, we need to worship God. We need to actually have a full worship of God as if we love God. So, that's a big problem. If, if we don't, show a love for God in our worship, what do we do? What do you think you'd do? You see, friends, we live, we, we have the ultimate benefit here. When it comes to God, loving him isn't a matter of trying to convince yourself that he's good. Loving God is just comes from seeing him. Friends, he really is supremely valuable. God is lovely. If you see God accurately, you will love God. If you don't love God, it's because you don't see God accurately right now. So if you don't find yourself loving God this morning, seek after him. Look deep into the word of God. See the things that he teaches us. See the things that he says about himself. See the things that he's done. And look through those things to see who he is and love him. If your heart isn't moved by Christ this morning, God promised that if you ask, that if any ask for the Holy Spirit, he'll give it. By the Holy Spirit, he can open your eyes. Ask him to. Do you desire to know God? Do you desire to love God this morning? Do you desire to live the life that needs to be lived? Do you desire to have the fullness of what the gospel calls us to and not just a get out of hell free card? Friends, seek after God. 
Seek for him to be your object of affection. Seek for him to be your love. And friends, that's not something I can do. In fact, that's not something any of us can do ourselves. To do that, we're going to need an act of God. Though the good thing is, it's an act of God God has promised already he will give us. If we could turn to prayer for a moment. Lord God, we confess that we have honestly not loved you as we ought. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have not sought after you. We have not believed you. We have not trusted you. Lord God, so often we've uh, treated you as an abstraction, as an addition to our lives. When just spending time with you directly is joy everlasting, at your right hand is the fullness of joy. Lord God, we pray now that you would open our eyes to see your joy. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord God, don't make us put on worship as if it was a series of actions to do. Help us to seek deeply your truth, to seek deeply you, and in seeing you, to love you, and in loving you, to act accordingly. Lord God, we thank you that by your, by your spirit and in your word you have promised that. Lord God, we wait on you to open our hearts. In Jesus' name.